In the second chapter of the book of Luke, you'll find the familiar Christmas story. And I'd like for you to turn to that passage that begins at verse 7. While we gather to celebrate Christmas today in a, in a setting of international uh, upheaval, I think that probably never in the history of man have we seen so much change in such a short time as in this last three weeks. And I think that probably one of these days most of us will be able to We'll look back and tell our grandchildren uh, about these days through which we pass. I am absolutely astounded at what is happening in the world. And I'm certainly not one who um, wants to pretend that he is a historian or knows anything about eschatology or those kinds of things. But I think that we'd all agree you don't have to be a Harvard graduate, <laughs> to know that this world will never be the same because of what has happened this past two weeks. And in light of this changing world, there are some things that are so important to know, and there are some stories that do not change. Read with me verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known this statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. It might be interesting to play word association with the word Christmas. 
it means something a little different to everybody, I suppose. If you're given to partying, if I said the word Christmas, you might think of party or hangover. I would hope not, but <laughs> could be. You remember a few years ago when Alka-Seltzer had that little advertisement, plop, plop, fizz, fizz? They came out with a Christmas jingle. Showed this guy holding his head in his hands, disheveled and hung over, and he kind of sings to the tune of the 12 days of Christmas. On the first day of Christmas I gave to me one head a-throbbing, one stomach-leaping office party Desk full of bills, six relatives, and a plop-plop in a fizz-fizz. If you're a merchant, if I said the word Christmas, you might think of sales. Most of what we get, I understand, as merchants, much of what we make depends on the Christmas sales. I saw an interesting article by a columnist by the name of Fuller in in the, we're in the uh, Dallas Morning News this week, and it was titled, Christmas Comes to Cambodia. And he told about these s street vendors on the streets of Cambodia selling little green tinsel Christmas trees and ornaments and plastic Santa Clauses. And he stopped to ask, are you a Christian? And she kind of looked shocked and said in broken English, I'm a Buddhist. And he said, well, why are you selling these symbols of Christianity? And her face lit up and she said, oh, I'll get rich like they do in America. I don't suppose that Christmas sales have made anybody rich, but probably kept some of you from going poor. If you're a consumer, you might think of Christmas bills. For most of us, spend so much at Christmas, it takes the rest of the year to pay for it. And if you're a musician, and I said the word Christmas, you might say carol. If you're a child, you'd say presents. And if you're super pious, I mean a veteran Christian, you might say the birthday of Christ. There's a plethora of emotion that surrounds the celebration of Christmas. It is the most dear and the most dreaded it is the most expensive and the most profitable of all holidays and celebrations. There are so many emotions that gather around this day of celebration. Christmas indeed is a paradox. It's a time to be afraid and a time to be unafraid. A time to fear and a time to be fearless. Can you imagine the emotion of fear that must have gripped these shepherds? Their life was pretty drab and routine and humdrum. I mean, what do you do when you tend sheep? I mean, how do you pass the time? It's got to be the most monotonous job that anybody ever had. And this night was just like any other night as they sat out on a little hill, just a stone's throw from Bethlehem, tending their sheep until... Heaven split apart. And this radiant beam from heaven afar illumined the land like a searchlight. And all of a sudden noise filled the night of calm 
And they were, the scripture says, and it must be an understatement, they were terribly frightened because they were coming closer to God than any man had ever been before. The most present emotion, the most logical feeling or emotion that comes to a person when he senses the nearness of God is fear. You remember when those disciples were out on that ship on the Sea of Galilee? It was late at night and all of a sudden that storm came up and whipped that little lake into a frenzy. And these disciples were, the scripture says, were frightened because they thought that their life was soon to be snuffed out in the waves. They thought death was imminent and they were frightened. And all of a sudden Jesus woke up in the hull of the boat and stood up in the front of it and calmed the wind or the waves. And the scripture says that these old sea salts who had been prior to that scared to death that that death was coming now were terribly frightened. And what the author of the book of Luke wants us to understand is that the fear that comes when a man senses the nearness of God is a fear like no other. It is time for us to fear Him. In fact, the Bible says that man ought to fear God and nothing else. And it just may be that the way we approach worship with a kind of a flippant, blasé, nonchalant fearlessness is an indication of how far we've drifted from God. It's a time to fear. And it's a time to be unafraid. Fear grips this land of ours, not reverential awe of God, but this stark, naked, bloody jungle fear. And most of what we do today has some kind of coloring and motivation of fear in it. I read an interesting observation from a one who knows something about marketing, that the way to market a product is to create an atmosphere of fear. Most of what we do is motivated by fear. Maslow says that man is fearful in marriage of his masculinity and woman is fearful of her attractiveness. It affects marriage, says Maslow. It affects, he says, the success we have in business. And he, has, he, he calls what some of us have as the Jonah complex where a man is fearful of his own greatness and flees from his own destiny. Most of what goes on is the result of fear. There's so much fear in this land that we have developed a new vocabulary for it. It's called phobia. And there are 75 phobias that lead to paranoia. There's even phobophobia, the fear of fear. Can you imagine what it must be like this morning if you're a judge or a lawyer or an NAACP executive to receive a package in your office or to get up in the morning and start to crank your car or open up your mailbox or open up the door of your office. Fear grips us. And all of a sudden when heaven split apart, these angels said, fear not. It's like saying, don't worry, you know. I mean, how do you not fear when all around you there is God? That's the point. There's no reason to be afraid. Emmanuel, God is with us. 
I remember vividly an experience from my childhood of fear. We lived way out in the country, about half a mile from a dirt road, just down in a, down in a field, way off from the kind of isolated, away from the main road, seven or eight miles from the big city of Monday, Texas. It was during the cotton harvest season and my father would, uh, we'd pull bowls by hand then and my father would go out and hook on to the, to the trailer and take it to the gin, which was about five miles away in a little German community called Rhineland. We just had one trailer, so we'd pull a trailer full of bowls, the black folks who came to work for us in the fall, and he'd take it to be ginned, and he'd stay down at the gin until it was emptied so he could bring it back, just one trailer. I remember as a little lad, my mother woke us up in the middle of the night. She'd seen a face in the window, and she was frightened. And so I had my, my brother and my sister. She got us up and got us in the central part of the house. He was nine years older than I am. I can remember the fear that, that they were expressing on their faces. He got a butcher knife. He was going to stand at the door and protect us, you know, real, <laughs> really a lot he could do. I don't remember too much about that experience except the fear that was there. And I remember we were keeping an eye on the window toward the road, the main road, and I can remember how happy we were when we saw that light. It must have been about 2 o'clock in the morning, the lights of my father's tractor as he turned off the main road and headed down to the house. And all of a sudden, the fear was gone. If you'll read the story of Jesus you'll see again and again a term he liked to use, fear not. He loved to come where there was fear and say to people, you don't have to be afraid anymore, I'm here. It's a time to fear. It's a time to be unafraid. It's a time of joy. It's a time of sadness. It has to be, for some of us, the most joyful occasion of the year, a time of great joy. Now, if you're a lowly shepherd, they lived on the bottom level of the social totem pole. Nobody who was anybody, you know, even thought about those nomads out on the hills. Even the rabbis despised their vocation because their isolation out in the hillside made the practice of consistent, formal religion impossible. And so they were kind of looked down on by everybody. They were kind of the forgotten of the, of the race, the people. And there wasn't really much, I'm, I imagine, that ever made them happy or made them laugh. And if I want to see, if I want to draw a picture of a shepherd out on a hillside, I've got to I've got to draw the picture of a person who is just kind of marking time and living in a kind of a joyless existence until heaven split apart and angels sang and the announcement came, I bring you good tidings of great joy for unto us a son is born a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. And the scripture says that they made haste to Bethlehem to see. It's not good enough. 
That Greek term means they bolted to Bethlehem. They leaped fences. They ran stop signs. They didn't, think, they didn't think about flocks left out on hillsides. There's something that transcends that. They bolted to Bethlehem and these people who scarcely ever laughed now could not keep from laughing. It's a time of great joy. It's a time of sadness. You don't have to read a book on modern psychology to know that Christmas for some people is the saddest day of the year. As a matter of fact, there are more suicides, there are more, there's more depression that surrounds this event than in any other time of the year. I'm not talking about that kind of sadness. It's a time of sadness because death is everywhere in this night. He came to die, did this sinless man. Holman Hunt has a picture that's famous, a picture of the Bethlehem manger, and there's this beautiful star in the heavens, and the glow, the glow, the beam of that star makes a cross that touches heaven and the manger. Death is everywhere in this night. And it wasn't long until Mary remembered what that prophet said to her that he will be for the fall. Notice the inversion. For the fall and the rising of Israel and she would be pierced through. And what you do, what happens here is that you, you bring this little casket out that you can carry in your hands seems so out of place there. And you put this little, this little blanket there and everything speaks of life, but the reality is death. And it just doesn't look like that death belongs there. Have you ever buried a baby? I suppose that the most difficult thing I've ever done is bury a child. Death is everywhere in this night. It's a sad night because it makes us aware of the mess we made out of life. For why did He have to come in the first place? Because we had taken that which was so pure and right and good and noble and ruined it. Because that which was so right and so present and so wonderful we prostituted. That's why it came. Reminds me that we haven't done much better. It's been 2,000 years since he was born and the same hatred and the same bigotry and the same injustice and the same pride and the same sin exists in manifold measure in most of us. And so I come to Bethlehem and I'm saddened because it reminds me of the man I was meant to be and am not. And his selflessness exposes my selfishness and his humility my pride his love, my hatred, his holiness, 
my sin. It's a time, are you hearing me? It's a time for godly sorrow and repentance. It's a time for peace and a time for revolution. A time for peace. The announcement was peace on earth. It's been 2,000 years since that announcement and there is no peace. Go into Romania, into Budapest, and talk about peace. Go to Panama, go to Nicaragua, go to San Salvador, go to Chile, go to Brazil, go to the ghettos of America and talk about peace. It's been 2,000 years and there is no peace. Were the angels wrong? No. They were not wrong. They're just talking about a different kind of peace than we think about. The angels were talking about this peace that happens in a man's heart when he knows Jesus Christ. And I talked to this young man who is away today, who was saved here in this church two weeks ago. You know what he said? I have found for the first time in my life peace. The orator said, the Roman emperor can give peace or land and sea, but he cannot give you peace from pride and lust and envy. Only God can. That's the kind of peace he's talking about. He's talking about the peace that enables one to endure in life's most fearful moments and devastating times. And so I walked out of the hospital this week, leaving behind a sick man and a grieving wife. And as I walked away, I heard them say, we know everything's going to be all right because God's with us. That's the kind of peace. It's a time for peace. It's a time for revolution. For he said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And I came to divide a man against his own household. You know what he meant by that? He meant that he didn't come to embrace the status quo. And he didn't come to encourage complacency and nominality. He came to disturb men. He came to disturb us. The manger is not enough. Every year we come to this beautiful story. Again, he's born in a manger dark. Again, he's sleeping in the hay. Again, the world grows luminous with starlight and softly fragrant. And we turn away from this story and we leave him in the manger. It's become a child's story. 
But if he's just a baby, then, the, then Christmas is not enough. But he grew, and he became a man, a leader, a giver of life, a great disturber. The babe of Bethlehem doesn't disturb us, but he does when he says, Come and follow me. Take up your cross. Blessed are the pure in heart. No man can serve God and mammon. We have adoration for the child, but we have outrage for the man. We don't want to be disturbed. And Ray Balcom reminds us that it's not hard to believe in Jesus of Bethlehem but it's hard to act like it. He said, it's easy to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. It's hard to act like sons of God. It's easy to believe that Jesus was one Savior. It's difficult to be saviors who lift men out of their despair and futility. It's easy to believe in the resurrection of Christ it's hard to live resurrected lives above, above the sin of the world. It's easy to believe that Jesus is coming again. It's difficult to live as one in whom they see Him here and now. It's easy to believe that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. It's difficult to be agents of reconciliation, bringing together the people of the world as one. It's not hard to be enthralled and, en and enchanted with the marvelous story of Christmas, but it was never meant to end there. And so the shepherds went back, glorifying God, never the same. And the scripture puts a little footnote to the story of the wise men when it says, and they departed a different way. I suppose that we have all heard Christmas stories. I leave you with the greatest I've ever heard. My professor of New Testament at Southwestern was a man named Hubert Drumright. He died a premature death. He told that on Christmas Eve, during World War II, he was, he was on a ship out near the island of New Guinea. And he said they, they docked for Christmas Eve to take on supplies and for a little rest and relaxation, a little R&R. And it was a friendly country, and he said little uh, New Guinean boys gathered on the dock and, and to, be enter to entertain and to be entertained by the American sailors. And he said, we, were, we, we threw money out in the harbor, and they would die for it. And, and he said there was a boy who was more athletic than the others, and he'd always get to the bottom and get the money first. And so one of the men on the deck asked Dr. Drumright if he could ask him on deck. And they permitted this little boy 
on their ship. And they, uh, he, he could speak a little English word or two, and they, they, they entertained him a while. And, 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 and finally he said, one of, my, one of my men handed him a New Testament. And he said, that, that the old boy opened it up, and he said, you know, he was, his face lit up like the sun, and he acted like he knew it. But he said, I knew he couldn't read it. He had it upside down. You know, he was playing like he could read. And he said, this same Christian sailor handed him a little booklet called Open Windows. You've seen those. You use them. On the front of that Open Windows magazine was a picture of Holman Hunt painted of the face of Jesus, that famous picture that hangs in some Sunday school rooms of Jesus. And he said, when that little New Guinean boy saw that picture, he just went, like we say, crazy. He just turned on. And he said, he pointed at the, at the, at the picture and, and, and he said, Yesu! And he pointed here over his naked body at his heart and cried, Yesu! And just to be sure that everybody understood, he, he pointed again and he, 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 two or three times he pointed and he said, Yesu! Yesu! And he pointed here and said, Yesu! Yesu! Said Hubert Drumrein. There in the midst of the devastation of war, we found a little boy who had been transformed by Yesu, Son of God. Christmas is not enough unless you go away revolutionized. Let's pray together. Our Father, how wonderful is the story. How challenging is the message that Jesus Christ came to earth, became a man, and where he stood and where he was, no one could ever be the same again. Lord, I pray this morning that we'll do more than just come to the manger, but that we will open up our hearts and our lives to the indwelling Christ, to the Yesu of the world, the Messiah, the anointed of God, who could bring change. For I pray in Jesus' name for His sake. Now I know that Christmas services, I know it's difficult to ever really make a public decision in a Christmas service. It just, for some reason, but somehow this morning, I, I want to urge you, if you're here without Jesus Christ, all over the world this morning, there are people who are opening up their lives to Him. 
and they find, they're finding that He is real, that He brings change and life. It's like coming back from the dead. Would you open your heart and life to Him? Would you pray that simple prayer that, that a dying man prayed this week in a hospital bed? Jesus, I want you to come into my life. Save me, because I cannot save myself. Is there a need this morning for someone to come and join the church? Or perhaps just to come today to say, I want Christ to live in me, to control my life, to make me like Himself, shaping me, molding me, using me. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.